Grapple fans, and welcome to the latest edition of Match of the Week, the series within the Let Me Tell You Something podcasting empire, in which myself, you Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Lorca Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, take it in turns to discuss a match that we pick from the wide world of pro wrestling. It's my choice this time. This is a, a match, or at least one of the participants in this match was someone I wanted to talk about for quite a long time. But I'd never got round to it, and it's sort of been pushed forward in the schedule as a result, unfortunately, of his passing away. And also, the other person opposite him in the ring is someone that seems to have had an increasing impact and and presence in pro wrestling, even after death, especially in one of the big main event storylines that sort of built around this feud from as far back as we're going. Simon... Who are taking part, and what is the match, and where are we? This is a match for the WWF Championship at Madison Square Garden on October 1977. The exact date eludes me, but it's between the American Dream Dusty Rhodes and the recently deceased superstar Billy Graham. I think with superstar Billy Graham, obviously it it was his recent passing, although how recent that is... Depends on how many five-star matches we get in between this episode being recorded and being released. But he was, you could argue, one of the... We recently said who were the ten most important figures in wrestling history. And I wouldn't put Billy Graham in that top ten. But as far as influential wrestlers, people who had an effect on not just the business, but other wrestlers, mm. you can argue, without superstar Billy Graham... Wrestling as we know it now, both in its presentation, but also as a cultural phenomenon, would not have happened. Yeah. Because basically, the fact of the matter is, no Billy Graham, no Hulk Hogan. And it's apparent the moment I lay eyes on him in this video, what what, what you mean by that. It's the same look. It's the same dude, like, from a presentation standpoint. It's incredible. It's incredible how much Hulk nicked, it seems. Well, he nicked it as much from the presentation, but it's funny because, obviously, Billy Graham was also the only wrestler for, like, 40 years of the WWF and the WWF and WWE, where they really built the promotion, if only for a short period of time, in relative terms, around a heel. Because until Billy Graham won the title, it had been 1963 to 71, Bruno Sammartino. He loses Ivan Koloff, who then within like a month loses the belt to Pedro Morales. Pedro Morales holds that title from 71 to 73, I think. He loses it to Stan Stasiak, who then almost immediately loses it back to Bruno Sammartino, which takes you from 73 to 77. Yeah. And then he drops the title to Billy Graham. But unlike Ivan Koloff, unlike Stan Stasiak, and then after that, unlike the Iron Sheik, unlike Andre the Giant, unlike even Kane, Billy Graham was given a lengthy run as the top guy of the promotion, headlining the matches. And instead of it always being the story of 
can the conquering hero overcome another challenge thrown at him by his perennial antagonists of the ringside managers? Yeah. It's instead, it's the way that the NWA always operated. Funnily enough, the booking philosophy of the guy he's opposite the ring to, Dusty Rhodes, where the belief was that the money was in the chase. Mm. Where it was people paying not to see someone valiantly retain their position at the top, but watching a heel getting knocked off their perch. And Billy Graham, until Yokozuna, was the only heel in those 30 years to have that run. Now, there are caveats to that. Because basically the main reason that he had that run was because Vince McMahon Sr., knew already and he had told Billy Graham like the day that he was going to win the title and the day that he was going to lose the title which was like 10-11 months later to Bob Backlund Mm. and that the problem was that Backlund had only just sort of debuted in the promotion at that point so they wanted the year to build him up yeah and it's funny because I was watching a couple of videos on YouTube of promos in the build-up I don't know if it was specifically to this match but to one of the big matches between Dusty Rhodes and Billy Graham, because they main evented Madison Square Garden a few times in 1977, and I think in 1978 as well. After Billy Graham lost the title to Backland, he did have a follow-up Texas Bull Rope match with Dusty Rhodes that Dusty won. Okay. And is basically alluded to in this match with the use of a rope at one point. In the promos, when Dusty Rhodes was talking about the, his hope to win this title and become a world champion, he name-drops Bob Backlund, saying, oh, maybe the finest athlete in all of wrestling. Bob Backlund was saying this to me earlier. So it was like Dusty Rhodes was doing his job of being the guy that keeps the heel warm and keeps the main event scene going and ultimately falls in his attempt to win the title to make Backlund's ultimate victory of it the big overcoming the top heel. Yeah. Bob Backlund is to Batista what Rob Van Dam, Booker T, Kane, others were to Dusty Rhodes. Yeah. In the use of it as a storyline purpose with Triple H being replaced for Billy Graham. And, and Triple H was the guy who inducted Billy Graham into the WWE Hall of Fame and was greatly influenced by him, at least on a presentational front. Because that's the key with Billy Graham. Like, not many people are copying that wrestling style. Mm-hmm. But so many were copying the look and the presentation. Yeah, he definitely looks the part, like I alluded to earlier, and the commentators are highlighting his 22-inch, like, you know, biceps. Which you assume is why Hulk Hogan then it was always made a point of him having the 24-inch. Pythons, yeah, yeah, yeah. That wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. He does look timeless. Like, a wrestler could look like that now, and you'd be like, that's a wrestler. You know what I mean? He, like, he, he just looks like he could you could plug him in anywhere whereas his opponent i don't know if you could plug him into the modern day so much dusty Rhodes, but he'd find a way but it wouldn't be it does it from the immediate look it's not as immediately apparent do you know what i mean well i guess it's one of those things about what is the philosophy of what makes a a great wrestler and what a great wrestler's look is and how bruno samatino really did change it that's not to say many wrestlers were looking like dusty Rhodes, but it was still there was a certain although to be fair, in, in relative terms for Dusty Rose, this is a f- quite trim and fighting fit Dusty yeah. compared to what we see him when it comes to the feuding with the Horseman days or the Polka Dot era. He's throwing hands rapidly in the warm-up, isn't he? He was very light on his feet. And 
also, like, one of the big influences, clearly, with both Dusty Rose and Billy Graham, and again, Dusty Rose was quite influenced by Billy Graham's style. He sort of fused Billy Graham's rhetoric with his cowboy persona. But I think it was also that they were both very clearly influenced by Muhammad Ali. Like, mm. Billy Graham would do rhyming promos about he's the man of the hour, he eats steaks and sells carb bake sales or something. I don't know, something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he has he has these lines. And the man of the hour, the man of power, too sweet to be sour, the hit maker, the record breaker, all that sort of stuff. And Dusty Rose would do versions of that in the future. It's curious seeing what's there with Dusty and what isn't there. Him coming out with sort of like a, a Ric Flair-esque glittery robe is somewhat unusual for the Dusty Rose that we know. The, the working man. Although I think that's what the hat's supposed to imply. Yeah. He seems to punk out someone with it as well. Like He looks like he's going to throw it at the start, but like, ah, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Or is it one of those, which side of the crowd do I give it to, the side that makes the most noise? It could be. That That's true. It could be that. It's also curious, though, because you were saying about how Billy Graham, so much of Hulk Hogan's style is that in the presentation, yes, the blonde, the bleach blonde hair. Again, it's funny how you can kind of root everything back to Luthez and and Buddy Rogers, our first match of the week. Yeah. In that there are the two contrasting parts of professional wrestling, I suppose. It's like how we were saying, you're a Brett guy or a Sean guy. It's like you're a Thez guy or you're a Buddy Rogers guy, I suppose. Mm. Where they both have the technique, but Thez is about the realism and the seriousness of it. And Buddy Rogers was about more the drama, heightening it, going at a faster pace, at a more over-the-top, sort of movements and bumping playing it up to the crowd whereas it's like Thez is like you're here to witness an exhibition and Rogers is like I'm here to put on a show for you yeah sort of your differing attitudes towards the fans the best ones probably fuse them together Antonio Inoki is more down the Thez line Bret Hart's more down the Thez line Shawn Michaels is more down the Buddy Rogers line and again, I think those that would be the Buddy Rogers are also the superstar Billy Grahams and everything. And the Dusty Rhodes, I suppose. Because it is curious that Dusty Rhodes is the only time that he worked in the New York area and he was still selling out Madison Square Garden, but his home base was always like Florida and Texas and Mid-Atlantic. Yeah. So he was always like the Southern States wrestler. But this brief time when he's in New York, he's still, because it's all about the show, isn't it, really? I mean, this match is barely a match. No. The video's about 15 minutes, and the match itself is about 10 of them. Yeah. Although they do try to give it the impression of an epic, long-form story, the way that they're selling exhaustion at the end of it, and that is the factor in the finish, that it's essentially a double-down, that both guys are out, but Billy Graham happens to be on top of Dusty. Yeah. Once again, the heel survives the babyface. He doesn't beat the babyface. Very NWA, isn't it? Yeah. But Dusty was always a showman. I think if Dusty had decided to stay in New York, he would have probably continued to have been a star. Obviously, Vince may have had certain issues with his presentation. I suppose the, also the other thing was Dusty was always one that wanted like a stake of it backstage, wanted to be part of the actual territory. Yeah. And be the creative person. Obviously, Vince would never have allowed for that. And the only reason he came to WWF in 89 was because of him losing a power struggle backstage. Mm. And Vince is like, well, 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 let's film a vignette of you cleaning out a shit-filled toilet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Vince, you 
crazy, crazy man. Vince, who we do see and hear in this, because this is announcer Vince. This is hosting All-Star Wrestling with his banana yellow jacket, Vince. Yeah. Again, he was the guy that was interviewing Dusty Rhodes and Billy Graham in the videos that I was watching. And it's curious because Vince, again, was another guy that was greatly influenced by Billy Graham to the point that he doesn't make wrestlers, he makes superstars. And it's pretty obvious in the way that he wrestles in this match that Billy Graham was not a wrestler. He was a superstar. Yeah. And so you can, and Vince always said that he was 10 years ahead of his time and the DVD and the book that they did of him after his Hall of Fame induction was called someone like either 10 or 20 years ahead of his time. I think 20 years too soon, wasn't it? But then it's like, are you ahead of your time or are you the one that creates the time? It's the Van Gogh thing, isn't it? Like, what, what did Van Gogh inspire? If you put Van Gogh in the time where the people he inspired was, without Van Gogh, would they be doing the same thing? It's, it's the same argument, isn't it? <laughs> yes, but to be fair, the thing with that was always that Van Gogh didn't sell a painting in his life, or he did, or he sold one painting in his life, whereas Billy Graham did sell out Madison Square Garden 20 times. Yeah. And that's in a relatively short period of time. He had the one run with the title. I was going to make a horrible joke about Van Gogh working the deathmatch style because of his chopped off ear, but... <laughs> Yeah, he was a fan of counterparts in Mick Foley. <laughs> the only time you'll hear those two put together in a sentence. So he was beloved in his time. The problem was it was through a combination of poor timing, Vince Senior deciding that he was going to stick with what he knew, which was the babyface formula of champion. And so he was always going to go with Backland. If Vince Jr., had bought the promotion from Vince Senior in 1977 as opposed to 1982, he would have probably just turned Billy Graham face mm. and had him continue as champion and not put Bob Backlund at the top. Things could have been different, but Billy Graham reading up on him, he, he was always his own worst enemy in many ways. He kept moving away in and out of things. He tried to sue the WWF over, there, over steroids, but he was using steroids like, for 20 years, and he only was working in the WWF for five of them. What? I never knew that. I mean, look at him. Of course he was. Well, that's the thing. It's like a wrestler was either muscular or toned, and he was both. Like, he had the bulk and he had the definition. Yeah. And that's not what a wrestler could really have, and it's not what most people can have, you know, all natty, as they say now. <laughs> And I'm not talking about Neidhart. Look at you down with the kids. They wrestle it like, especially at the end, like it's been a 25, 30 minute match. In many ways, it's reminiscent somewhat in the use of blood and weapons and everything of like the street fight between Cactus Jack and Triple H that will be held there 23 years later. That's a thought. My God. The gap between this match and the Royal Rumble match between Triple H and McFoley is as wide as the gap between that then and, and now. Oh, bloody Oh, hell. Jesus, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Mick Foley, again, is kind of, it is of that continuation. Mick Foley was the guy of the violence and the blood, which always existed in wrestling. Like, ECW didn't invent that. Dusty Rhodes was taking part in barbed wire matches in the 80s and 70s. Well, maybe not the 70s, but definitely in the 80s. And you get the double juice in this as well. Oh, yeah. You get the weaponry. You, the hang. Whilst there's not a lot that's in common with the Texas death match between John Moxley and Hangman Adam Page, they do repeat the hanging spot with the rope. Yeah. And uh, unlike that wuss Moxley, <laughs> Billy Graham doesn't tap out. Yeah, Gra Graham 
sells that incredibly well, though, because he's like, I am in a world of trouble here. He's even got, like, the crooked neck as well, which I, I don't know how he quite got away. Well, it helps when your neck is as thick as his, but, you know, he, he, the, the image it conveys is... <laughs> Oh, Dusty's about to do it, and then somehow doesn't. <laughs> Dusty Rose is possibly the spursiest wrestler there is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can see how this Northeast WWF New York style of wrestling, as it was referred to, was seen as either the worst or the second worst style of wrestling in all of America to, like, really the wrestlers, but also, like, the equivalents of the hardcore fans in that era, your Jim Cornettes, your early tape traders, mm. your early dirt sheet writers and distributors and newsletter writers. It was basically between WWF and Memphis. But you can't deny the results because the crowd is molten throughout it all. Oh, God, they love every second of it. And I guess that's why they don't do what we're used to in terms of, like, amount of stuff to get to, like, the bloody finish. They don't need to. No. So much of it's just Dusty standing in front of Graham and Graham begging off. Like, from the start, basically. And you were saying that you can see the, the Hulk Hogan influence in Billy Graham. In his heel work, I see a lot of Hollywood Hogan in that. Ah. It, like, the way that Hogan would be on his knees begging off yeah. was so reminiscent of superstar Billy Graham. So I was going to think about when you, like, talk about when Volta begs off as well well that's more in a the big bully finally getting his comeuppance at, at the late points whereas but he's good at conveying it as well yeah he is but it's a different type of cowardice and yeah. volta's always about a certain amount of realism whereas this is pantomime oh yeah. you know this is billy graham begging off and then catching him with a shot in the gut afterwards or oh, hogan would do that as well and it'd be like a poking no, and obviously rick flair had that as well yeah it's fun for what it is. If I was a contemporary smark, I would probably hate this match to high heaven. <laughs> and I was watching it going, there is no meat on the bone of this. You know? Yeah. But like you say, it is a sold out Madison Square Garden and they're all desperate to see Dusty win. And then when he doesn't, they're desperate to come back for the rematch. And when Billy Graham does lose the belt to Bob Backlund, they've got that. They finally get their delight or so it would seem, anyway. Although Bob Backlund, I think, took a lot longer to sell out more Madison Square Gardens than Billy Graham did. But, yeah, Billy Graham's story is fascinating. As, as is always the case, I would say, read The Observer. If you hate Dave Meltzer for the gossip, just read him for the obituaries and the history, because that stuff, it's bloody long. We had to push back this recording by a few minutes after I realised how long it was going to be. <laughs> Superstar Billy Graham, it is what Vince molded them on after this. It's larger-than-life personalities with incredibly unique or interesting looks. Yeah. It's not just a serious man in black trunks doing mat wrestling. And even the guy that did wear black trunks, they turned into a star in a different kind of way. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yes, definitely. I mean... What did you think of this match? Like I said, it's like you did all the presentation of it, but if you actually... It's like, it's like watching a J.J. Abrams film. It gives you all the visual cues of a great film, and then when you leave it and think about it for a minute, you're like, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was just wild, raucous fun. Like, it wasn't... I don't want to say match is a strong word, because it was a match. Like, But it was clearly like... It's weird, because they're at Madison Square Garden in 77, and I thought, oh, this reeks of a setup match. 
And I'm like, well, if this is your Madison Square Garden main event, what are you setting up to? Well, that's how it always works. Most feuds would do a two or three month loop with the champion on the top. The undercard doesn't necessarily need that. But it would be that a new challenger would emerge after the champions defeated the last guy. They'll wrestle one match and the heel challenger will win by like a DQ or a count out. Mm. And then they'll do a second match where again they might either win by a DQ or a count out or the champion retains but under slightly unsure measures. And then they'll have the final blow off match which very often will be a gimmick match. More often than not will be a cage match because it will play into the oh you can't get counted out, you can't get disqualified. And so obviously maybe people are more excited about this because it's the theoretical blow off gimmick match. So maybe this will be the one subconsciously that they think that that if Dusty Rhodes is going to win, he's going to win this one and he's going to win the title. So that might also be why there's a build-up of of anticipation, which weirdly, the lack of entrance music helps build up. Yeah. In that it's like a slowly rising tide of more people realising that Dusty Rhodes is out and then the anticipation of when Billy Graham's coming out and they milk that. You know, Dusty Rhodes plays the crowd, as you say, teases throwing the hat, even has time to do a little promo on the house mic with Vince McMahon at ringside. Yeah. And so it, it really puts across just how over these guys are with the crowd because there is no bells and whistles. There is no music drowning out the crowd reaction necessarily. Mm-hmm. And it's there at a fever pitch throughout. I mean, how Finkel has said that in all the years he was announcing wrestling, there were no hotter crowds than the Madison Square Garden crowds for when it was Bruno Sammartino against Billy Graham. Okay. Like, that's as loud as he heard those that place gets. Yeah, makes sense. But it's also, I think you're probably thinking about, again, about the length of time, because, again, that was another sign of how the WWF was different to the other NWA promotions. Like, WWF at this point was more like a satellite promotion. Like, that acknowledged the NWA and its world champion, but had its own place. Right. So they sort of, they were sort of like what Sammy Guevara is to the Jericho Appreciation Society <laughs> or something. Because during this run, he genuinely did a 16,000 sellout, Billy Graham, in Florida in a title versus title match with Harley Race. Okay. That went to a 60-minute time limit draw, which... I don't know that I would want to watch a 60-minute Billy Graham match, put it that way. I know what you mean there. I think I need to see more Billy Graham. I don't think this match was like a showcase. I don't know if you need to see more matches, though. Yeah. I think you need to see more angles. You need to see more promos. You need to see what it was that inspired people. What it was. It wasn't his wrestling matches, really, that got Paul Heyman to start going to wrestling shows. Yeah. It wasn't his matches that made Hulk Hogan want to build his whole look around him and Jesse Ventura and Ric Flair and Dusty Rose changed their promo styles. Mm. It wasn't his wrestling matches that did that. They, they didn't not contribute. He did what he needed to do to get a crowd reaction, but the reaction was gained not through his matches, like gradually building a following, like say someone like Chris Benoit did. Yeah. It was through him talking the people in, into the seats not putting on an in-ring spectacle to make people want to come back and see them again. Yeah. Like, like, he did enough to get them going. Like, there's another clip, I only saw it in GIF form, I think it must have been around the time that Billy Graham died, of him having another match against one of the other big stars of that time, one of the big baby faces of the WWF territory for years, uh, Polish power Ivan Putski. Oh, yeah. And there's a moment in it where Putski hits him with his Polish hammer, which was a double axe handle to the chest. Yeah. And Billy Graham goes flying, and you can, it feels like 
the entire Madison Square Garden crowd just leaps up in its feet at one because they've seen the heel champ get hit with the deadly finishing move of the baby face that no one ever gets up from. Yeah. And I don't know if that then led to him, because he did go out the ring, so maybe it was a count-out finish at that point. Uh... But that was another match that I was kind of looking for, because there, the, there were three obvious candidates who we were going to do Billy Graham. It was always going to be either Bruno Sammartino, Bob Backlund, or Dusty Rhodes. And I decided to go with Dusty Rhodes because it was this feud with Billy Graham that Cody was referencing when he was doing his first promo about why he was in the WWE. It was like he wanted to win the belt that his dad held but didn't win. I'm with you. And it's through this feud that that came about. Exactly, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I I think I'm going to have to, like, you know, get more of a grip of the Billy Graham character. Probably, like, some promos or videos on uh, YouTube. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame that it takes a death for people to come to bring it up, I suppose. Mm. Unfortunately, when they tried to rehabilitate him in the 2000s, when they inducted him into the Hall of Fame, there just wasn't the interest because the Ric Flair DVD had sold so many copies when that came out. And I have that DVD. That was like a first day purchase for me. But basically the problem was that Vince's marketing when he took over was too good and it just feels like all of wrestling pre-January 1984 or if you're going to be kind and also include Ric Flair winning at Starcade over Harley Race, any wrestling pre-November 1983 is just, it's BCAD and it's just not what people are interested in. Yeah. And it looks different and it sounds different and it just is not of appeal. It just... It's like, it's like trying to get a kid to watch a black and white movie. Yeah. The closest equivalent I can think of is, at the moment that came to my head, is Erling Haaland. Like, oh, he's beat the Premier League goal-scoring record. All right, now that we need to talk about Dixie Dean, and right, we have to remember that football existed before 1992 in, in the UK. Exactly. That is the running gag, that football basically seemed to be conceived when Gaza cried, and then it came to term and was birthed. In August 1992 with the Premiership. Does that mean Graham Taylor managed our gestation period? Because I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> Graham Taylor, the John the Baptist of English football. <laughs> it is crazy. like that. And as he said, before his time, and so he didn't get to reap the rewards. But he was an eccentric man and a, and a troubled man and a, pro, and a man that was always going to cause havoc. Like, like I said, he knew the day that he was going to lose the belt to Bob Backlund. And two days before then... He had a steel cage match in Philadelphia against Bruno Sammartino. And that sold out so much. There was literally like 6,000 people outside the arena trying to get in. And because in Madison Square Garden, when there was a sellout, they had an overspill area that was like adjacent to the arena where they would beam it in like on a big screen. Close circuit, yeah. Go beyond a sellout. Graham did that several times and obviously Bruno did it a crazy number of times as well. For this Philadelphia show, they were literally having to talk about it on the Philadelphia news, like saying, don't go to the Spectrum, there are no seats. <laughs> and it caused a massive traffic jam, like one of the biggest traffic jams in recent in that time at Philadelphia. But anyway, they booked, and it was because it was like, well, how can Bruno never loses in a steel cage match? Because how do you, how can a heel get away with winning a steel cage match? He has to win it fair and square, and heels can't win it fair and square. So they did that thing that, they, it was always the sneaky out with steel cage matches. I remember they did a similar finish with a Jimmy Snooker against Don Morocco. Yeah. Is that Bruno hits him with a punch so hard 
and it sends Billy Graham flying so far that he flies into the door of the cage, breaks open the door because of how hard he's been hit, and falls to the outside Ah. and wins that way. Yeah. He tried to convince Vince McMahon Sr. when he turned up at Madison Square Garden two days later that that bump was so bad that his knee was screwed and he probably wouldn't be able to do the match. (laughs) Problem was, Vince knew that the day after that he'd gone to a booking in Toronto and wrestled a match. (laughs) (laughs) So, I like that. You sure it wasn't this Toronto thing? No, no. (laughs) He first learned the gift of the gab genuinely through Christian, like, preachers. And famously... There was a Billy Graham around this time who was this really influential religious figure that would sell out like stadiums to to watch him preach. Yeah. So again, another inspiration behind it. And Graham himself would fall in and out of religion and was just like a, a mercurial kind of guy. He would love Vince, then he'd hate Vince. And he'd love Vince, and he'd hate Vince. He made a comeback in 1987, but he was phys- he was supposed to be in the main event of the first Survivor Series teaming with Hulk Hogan against Andre the Giant's team. All right. But he did his hip in too soon before then, and he had to retire. So then they partnered him with Don Morocco, a babyface turned Don Morocco, and he was his manager for a brief period. That was the first time I saw him was at WrestleMania 4. And at that point, he'd done the bleach blonde moustache as well. And Ah. he just looked like Hulk Hogan's dad, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) And I was kind of confused as to who he was. And they tried him out in commentary. He's the commentator on SummerSlam 88. If you've heard him in anything, you might have seen clips of when the Ultimate Warrior beats the Honky Tonk Man for the title. That's superstar Billy Graham and Carl and Terry with Gorilla Monsoon. Again, they thought he's a talker. He like he had the cadence and the presentation, but he actually sometimes stumble over his words, much like we do. Yeah. And it's funny when you look back at those promos, like they had it all, but it's kind of before it's all set down and written and probably more mapped out and planned out there. Seeing how the wind takes them. Dusty Rhodes just at one point goes on a complete detour about how he's not racist. Very <laughs> strange. Yeah, Billy Graham. And there's all these stories. He would disappear for a while and come back. And he completely reinvented his look when he came back for a few with Bob Backlund in 1992 where he shaved his head. He seemed to have visibly aged very badly. He'd slimmed down quite a bit, but he still had the big arms. I mean, there's also so much of Scott Steiner in the presentation as well. Uh, oh, yeah. the big Papa Pump character was just basically a, <laughs> a, a, a Billy Graham if he just couldn't hide the roid rage essentially <laughs> <laughs> and he tra- claimed to be a kung fu master because yes. he was like that was a kung fu was a popular thing at the time but he couldn't do any kicks so he would just chop people <laughs> <laughs> like great Carly <laughs> basically yeah so he was never like his time in the spotlight was relatively short lived in that time period and as I said, like he was physically cropped by the time he was 40. It's amazing that he lived as long as he did. Yeah. In all honesty, for everything that he'd gone through. He's had a liver replacement, all sorts of stuff. He's a fascinating guy. Maybe Apparently his books are great reads. So maybe, again, if we ever do about this thing about doing a wrestling book club, maybe uh, that'll be one to add to the list. Yeah. Not, after, not until you've read Confessions of a Smart Wrestling Fan, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> The one spot in the match I thought was really well done, and just a sign of how you work in the crowd perfectly, is when Graham gets Dusty Rhodes in like a bear hug after applying the rope choke. Yeah. And 
Dusty's in pain. He's bleeding at this point. They've done the double juice thing. It's like Dusty realises, and then the crowd realises that where his arm is placed, he's in perfect position to hit the bionic elbow to escape. Oh, yeah. And it's like he starts moving his arm, shifting it along the shoulders of Graham, and then he starts to lift it up, and the crowd cottons on. Again, just like a masterful example of just standing there, don't have to apply any real pressure to the bear hug, you don't have to do anything that hurts you, and you can drive the crowd crazy in a simulated fight. That's what working is. That's true talent, though. And no one really does that anymore, I suppose. No. Well, the game's changed. Like, Like we alluded to earlier, like, if you put this exact match on... It'd be incredibly difficult to do. But it all comes down to your character work. But I don't know that these aren't the sort of matches the crowd would want still. Yeah. So you just put a bit more faster pace. Although this isn't a fast pace because it only goes 10 minutes. Mm. It just gives the impression of being a longer match. Yeah. With the exhaustion double down at the end. And the selling towards that point. But again, it's just that sign of, as long as you're playing to the crowd, then that's all that matters. Yeah, and as long as you tell like a compelling enough story, I mean, we literally had a point in WWE in the last 20 years where fans voted for two guys to hug rather than fight, and they were going bananas for it, and all, all Daniel Bryan and Kane had to do was was literally hug, Yeah, and the crowd were like eating it up. I love that there was a referee for the hug. <laughs> I love that even now... In 1977, it wouldn't be a Dusty Rhodes involvement unless the finish was somewhat confusing and annoying. (laughs) Where it's like, Dusty, referencing the fact that when Billy Graham beat Bob Backlund for the title, he had his feet on the ropes. Yeah. To add to the leverage of the roll-up. That annoyed me a little bit, because isn't it Texas death? Yeah, that was yeah, that was another thing. Like it should be legal, really. Yeah. And it's not that the referee doesn't even count the three, it's like he notices and tells Dusty. But he, after he's counted the two, and Dusty's like, I can't count. I assume I've won. <laughs> yeah. I'm not paying attention. <laughs> but the ultimate irony of that was that when Bob Backlund pinned Billy Graham in their match with use of his deadly finisher, the atomic drop. Yeah. When he pinned him, Billy Graham had his foot on the ropes, but the referee didn't see it. <laughs> so it counted, and then obviously Backlund won the subsequent rematches and their rerun of the program in 1982. Yeah. And that had a very famous angle where Billy Graham is so affronted at back having what he sees at his belt that he takes the belt and destroys it, like rips it apart, smashes it against the ring post, tears at the gold plating, which was a gimmick that they then replayed eight years later with Mr. Perfect and Hulk Hogan. Oh, okay. They've never really done that since, really, where someone just... Dis- they've done ones where they steal the belt, but they don't destroy it. Maybe because they're just too expensive these days. Uh, the closest <laughs> one I can think of is when Orlando Jordan beats John Cena for the US spinner belt. And then JBL hates the look of it, so blows yeah. it up. But that also allowed... Because they knew they weren't going to put the US belt back on John Cena. They moved on to bigger and better things with the WWF title, so they could afford to yeah. do that. Also, I'm pretty sure you just place it in a bin and you don't actually see it blow up. No, but the bin blows up. Yes, but you can... I don't know if you know this, Simon, but David Copperfield didn't really go through the Great Wall. What? Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I do wonder if maybe the reason that this took off and why it was so popular, this style in New York, is because New York's the place of Broadway. So they just expect a show. Hmm. Like, expect the razzmatazz. 
Whereas people who live in the middle of rustic bumblefuck Arizona or Texas, they know how harsh reality is, and that's how harsh and real they want their wrestling to be. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I suppose. Whilst I get the notion of that Billy Graham was 10 years ahead of his time, I think it's more that Billy Graham was what made wrestling into what it was 10 years later. Yeah. And he's of that lineage from Gorgeous George onwards, I suppose. He's like a continuation of that lineage, really. Yeah. Of the showman. If you're on your own in wrestling, can you yourself be ahead of your time, so to speak? Because you haven't got any dance partners to show you're ahead of your time style, you know what you mean? You can be influential, but if it's just you, I don't buy into the fact you can be ahead of your time. If you had, for example, All Japan's Four Pillars, because you have dance partners to work a new and progressive style with, maybe you could go ahead of your time in that sense. But I don't know if an individual in wrestling could ever truly be ahead of their time because wrestling's such a reactive art form. Well, we have never been ahead of our time, but we are out of time with this one. Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with some more Billy Graham recommendations, how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm sending a Simon Cross free. Free for the number of plates on the each side of the bar of the dumbbell when Billy Graham does bicep curls. My name's Lorcan Munn, and that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for the A in 22-inch arms, and N for the N that's the second letter in inch. Look, it's the letters A and N, okay? I've said it enough times. (laughs) And I say it when I spell out the first name as well. I don't know why I feel the need to elaborate on the second name. (laughs) Well, I do. I do know, because otherwise... You'll spell it the filthy Protestant way of spelling it, Mullen. And I'm not having any of that. (laughs) For our next episode, boy oh boy, was it one that caused some pouting, I suppose was how you would put it. That that is the quote I used, yes. yes. Yeah. It left me pouting like I was a real housewife just testing the limits of their new collagen injection. (laughs) Simon, where are we? What are we talking about and what will you be doing for this next episode? So due to the nature of the ep- uh, of the match we're talking about, uh, I will be taking the reins. The Roman reins? In, well, not for a thousand days, I won't. Jesus. Will your intro go on for 20 minutes? <laughs> no, but I'll, I'm going to arrange for several Samoan men to kick you in the face. when. when yeah, uh, but I already on... do that on a weekly basis anyway. So. <laughs> Don't kink shame me. <laughs> Funnily you mentioned kink shame because we are watching a match between the two members of Big Dangerous Scary Mammals, BDSM. The joke being very much intentional. Uh, it's a match I saw in the fle- I saw live. You were going to say in the flesh with BDSM. <laughs> Raising some uh, Jesus wept Hellraiser influences there. <laughs> And it's between Charles Crowley and Clementine. And this will be our first intergender match of the week. Yes, you heard it right. After the megastars of Billy Graham and Dusty Rhodes, we haven't taken a step down in stardom whatsoever with this one. This was... Match of the week is about variety. Yes. And I am delivering that. (laughs) Yeah, I deliver an entertaining match. You deliver. Oh, (laughs) well... We will talk about it next time. <laughs> anyway, but uh, uh, but there's nothing to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. 
And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week. Thank you.